I want us to jump into our text today in Judges chapter 2. But before we do, I want to give you a couple of uh, things that will help us maybe have handles for today's sermon. Uh, Our focus, our aim is this. If I could put it in one sentence, here's what I hope we get from today's sermon. That you would repent of your sin, believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and worship the one true God with all your heart. That's what I hope is the conclusion of opening God's word in Judges chapter 2 today, preaching, and then I pray that obedience looks like that. In Judges chapter 2 through chapter 3, uh, I think the, the, um, the card may say verse 9, but I'm going to stop at verse 8 today. The title of the sermon Trey gave us early earlier in the service, worshiping the wrong God. Uh, That's little G-O-D. Worshiping the wrong God. I want to read the first five verses of the text and then uh, we'll dive in. Uh, I'll I'll pray again for the preaching of the word and we'll dive in together. Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed themselves down to them. Thus, they provoked the anger of the Lord. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he gave them into the hands of the plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. And as the Lord had spoken, and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. Let me pray again for the preaching of his word this morning. Father, we pray that as we look at these words in Judges chapter 2, that you would open our eyes so that we may see wonderful things in your word. And Father, we pray that your gospel would come today, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those of you who don't know, the Smith family loves animals. We're fans of animals, but I'll be honest with you. I have a dog that, if anybody wants it, he's yours. It's a free dog. Um, Maybe a double doodle, probably just a mutt, but his name is Brinkley. He's two years old, and he will relentlessly play fetch. Uh, probably to exhaustion and death if you keep throwing the ball. The reason I'm even giving you any information about Brinkley at all is because we had a week with Brinkley. A very interesting week with Brinkley. Last Sunday, the entire family was leaving the house. And as we're leaving the house... We all pile in the van, and there's always one, 
It's not always the same person. Sometimes it's me, sometimes it's Angie, sometimes it's Josiah, sometimes it's Olivia, sometimes it's one of the other kids. They're just a little bit behind everybody else, and so we're all out in the garage in the van waiting for the last one to do whatever they're doing in the house to, to leave. Well, this time it was Josiah, and he comes out, and he gets into the, the van with the rest of us, and I remember, oh, my coffee is on the bar. I need to go get that. So I have to go back in. Well, there's about a 30-second window from the time that Josiah entered the garage and I entered back into the house. Within 30 seconds, our dog, who was inside, uh, normally he's in the kennel or outside, but because it was freezing cold, uh, we let him stay in the house. Within 30 seconds, he had opened a wooden cabinet, drug out the trash, and it was sprawled out all over the floor. So when I walked back in, there was this mess. Well, I won't say too much, but... Um, what happened next to the dog, most people would probably not appreciate, but he was punished and he was put into the cage or his kennel. Maybe that's the nice way to say it. And this isn't something new. He's been punished before. He's a lover of trash. He's a trash raider. He will dive into any dumpster available, whether the trash can's this big or bigger or whatever he can get into. He likes to find trash. Well, with his tail tucked between his legs, and the obvious dog expression of guilt, he skirts off. Well, that wasn't the only time that he did that this week. It happened again yesterday. Same dog, same issue. Something that he has been punished for before many times. He returns to the trash, gets out whatever fleeting pleasure that he gets from dragging trash into the house, and then received the punishment that always comes. It seems absurd. It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand why he doesn't know at this point that there's a consequence for getting into the trash. Well, perhaps you see where I'm going with this. As silly as it may sound, we are a lot like Brinkley. God's people in the book of Judges are a lot like Brinkley. They do the absurd. They do the absurd knowing that a consequence will happen. Or perhaps choosing to forget in the moment of their pursuit of some other pleasure. Choosing to forget that there is a God and he sees what you're doing. In today's text, Judges chapter 2, we see this downward spiral of sin in the nation of Israel just one generation after Joshua dies. In verse 11, it says, The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Bells. The first thing that I want you to notice this morning in the text is this. That the sons of Israel denotes that this is the generation that follows what we find back in Judges 2.8, which Jordan preached just a couple of weeks ago before we had the, the snow break. And it describes Joshua in chapter 2 verse 8 as the servant of the Lord. He was a faithful servant of God. The leader of the nation was a faithful servant of God. And in just one generation, 
they had forgotten. They had forgotten. They had moved forward. And the writer of Judges begins to narrate for us in today's text the condition of Israel really from God's perspective. And the assessment is condemning. Joshua dies and the generation that follows, it says in our previous text, does not know the Lord nor the works that he has done. Perhaps they had heard the stories or even saw the faithfulness of Joshua. They could not have possibly forgotten that the walls of Jericho crumbled at this point. Could they? That seems almost impossible. They saw all those things, but something was missing. They didn't understand Joshua's heart of faith. They may have known the stories. They may have even seen some of the miracles that took place, but they did not understand the faith that was accompanied to those things that they knew. And in today's text, it says the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. There's a contrast between Joshua's generation and the current generation that we find in Judges chapter 2. Israel was behaving as if God was far off. They had forgotten him altogether. The way Brinkley would forget that the trash had a consequence. Dear saints, it was said here in testimony earlier as the ladies talked about cross kind. Nothing escapes the eye of the Lord. He sees it all. We may put God out of our minds, but his existence and his awareness, even of our thoughts and actions, he's still omniscient. He sees it all. God always sees the evil that we do. He doesn't miss anything. The text tells us that the people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. But what exactly was this evil that they're guilty of? Well, according to verse 12, it says the people of Israel forsook God. They forgot him. They forgot what he had done for them. He was the God that brought them out of Egypt, it says in the previous sermon's text. He was their powerful and faithful deliverer. That's who God was. That's who God is. But they had forgotten him. They did not know God this way. Did they know the stories again of Exodus? Yes, they knew. But did they know the God of Exodus? No, they didn't. Did they know the stories of Joshua's victory at Jericho and all the victories over the land of Canaan? Yes, because they possessed the land. But they had separated Joshua's victories from the faithful, sovereign hand of God who had given them those victories. So they forsook God, the God of their fathers, just one generation prior. They set him aside, they forgot about him, and they began to serve other gods according to the text. They were serving, think about this, gods who had done nothing for them, could do nothing for them. They were serving gods who would never do anything for them. 
They bowed their knees to made-up, imaginary, dead gods of a foreign nation. Let me say it again, because I want you to hear how ludicrous this is. They bowed their knees to the made-up, imaginary, dead gods of a foreign nation. They They consciously chose to walk away from the only God who had ever actually acted on their behalf to serve little g-o-d-s gods who had never acted on anyone's behalf when you forsake God you do not simply walk away from him but you walk away from truth and from reality to utter emptiness that's all that exists outside of God nothing You have to create lies. You have to choose to believe what is false in order to justify walking away from the God of truth. You must choose to imagine that a little G-O-D is actual and actively ignore, excuse me, and actively ignore the big G-O-D who is real. It's the only way you can get there. There's an actual medical condition of mental illness that some people have involuntarily, means they didn't want it, but it, it's been inflicted upon them. They suffer from that requires psychiatric care for the detachment from reality that they suffer from. It's a mental illness. They detach themselves from reality. But the people of Israel were voluntarily following other gods. It wasn't a mental condition, it was a spiritual condition. They knew they were choosing to distance themselves from the reality of God. According to verses 11 through 13, the evil action, the verbs connected to the people of Israel are as follows. In just these three verses, this is what it says about the people of Israel. Serve the bells, abandoned the Lord, followed other gods, bowed down to other gods, abandoned the Lord, served the Baal and the Ashtaroth. Six different things that three verses say they did. Now I want to make a small note here related to the evil deeds. They didn't just begin to abandon God in the spur of the moment. It wasn't just this spontaneous act that happened. They began by willingly allowing the other nations to remain among them when God had given them a command to remove them. And they began to intermarry among these people after they allowed them to remain among them. They joined with other nations, if you will. And then they began to serve and worship the gods of those nations. So it wasn't something that just happened. This generation that follows Joshua spent the lifespan of their lives gradually drifting away from God. It's that kind of language that we find in Hebrews 2.1. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. It's, It's like on a raft in the ocean and you 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 kind of doze off and the next thing you know you're further and further away from the shore and the shore is the god that you once knew and you imperceptibly just gradually drifted out to sea away that's what happened to the people of israel 
This phrase, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, will be the introduction statement for each cycle of sin that we find in the book of Judges. So we're about to walk through individually these judges that God appoints for the salvation of the people of Israel. And in each one of these incidents, we're going to hear that phrase. And the people of Israel, or the sons of Israel, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Thus, they provoked the Lord to anger. Look with me in verses 14 and 15. This evil that they did, this bowing the knee to other gods, this walking away from God, this disobedience, this chosen path provoked the anger of the Lord. It says, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. That's very descriptive from my vantage point, that the anger of the Lord burns. God's anger is hot. It's kindled. It's furious. This is not the same as God being disappointed or frustrated. It says he burned with anger. This is burning anger. This is not a little setback. He burns with anger. Yet God's anger is not like our anger. God's anger is righteous and holy. God's anger is justified. It's it's warranted. And it's never excessive. When God is burning with anger, he's not overreacting. He's not losing his temper for a minute. It's precise. It's exactly what he intends. He knows what he's doing, and he's doing it rightly. The prophet Jeremiah talks about both what stirs up the anger of the Lord and what subsides that anger. In Jeremiah chapter 23, I want to read a handful of verses to you. It says this in Jeremiah 23, 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. So these weren't good prophets. These were bad prophets. These were false prophets. He says, they're leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination. Remember us talking about imagining these false gods? Not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise God, The Lord has said, you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, calamity will not come upon you. But who has stood in the counsel of the Lord, that he should see and hear his word? Who has given heed to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord has gone forth in wrath. Even in a whirling tempest, It will swirl down on the head of the wicked. Think about that picture. And then verse 20, the anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and carried out the purposes of his heart. In the last days, you will clearly understand it. When God's anger burns, when God's anger is poured out, listen, he does not stop until his anger And the actions that his anger causes accomplish the purpose that they were set out to accomplish. He will finish the job, the angry job. 
And according to Jeremiah 23, 20, God's burning anger that is stirred up will not cease until the Lord has accomplished the purpose of his anger to make you understand the reality of him. Make no mistake, when God's anger is poured out, it's so that you'll know he's real. And not just real, but he's the one true God. God's anger is fierce, but it's perfect. And ultimately, listen, this is so important. God's anger with the people of Israel is aimed at redemption. It's aimed at redemption. Now, it may be hard to try to piece those two things together, but that's exactly what we hope to do in the book today. That God's righteous anger is redemptive in its aim. Let's be reminded of the cross of Jesus for a moment. There's no moment in history that the burning anger of the Lord can be seen more clearly than when he pours out his wrath on the cross of Christ. You want to see God's anger at its fiercest, at its most righteous. It's always most righteous, but if we could zero in on that moment and see, he pours it all out right there. It's the culmination of his anger. And it is on this cross where Jesus suffers, bleeds, and dies, where his burning anger, God's burning anger, is both poured out entirely and satisfied for the purpose that God intended for it to be poured out. For the purpose of redeeming people who are guilty of doing evil in his sight. God pours out his anger on the cross of Jesus Christ to redeem people who are guilty of what Israel's guilty of in Judges chapter 2, doing evil in the sight of the Lord. The anger of the Lord, verse 14, Judges chapter 2, burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. You want to sin? You want to take part in this? Well, I'm going to cripple you. I'm going to bring you down. In the generation that followed Joshua, the anger of the Lord caused him to act. He could no longer stand by and just view the evil that they did. He must act. His holiness requires him to. The glory of his name requires him to. The worship that is due God requires him to act. Perhaps the actions, again, are still difficult to grasp here. Of course, if we ever doubt the justice of God's actions, then we're, we're in need of some reproving. If we ever find ourselves questioning the character of God that we find in his word, we should ask him for understanding. Far too often, people determine who they believe God to be in their own mind and then attempt to interpret or judge Scripture from their own flawed perspective. But the text tells us that God does two things in his anger, his perfect, righteous, burning anger. He gives them into the hand of their plunderers and sells them into the hand of their enemies. There's a progression in these two actions. To be given into the hands of your plunderers is to lose your protection, to become vulnerable, to be robbed and mistreated. They're plundered. The protection that 
they used to have under the hand of God is now against them. It's been removed. And so those who want to come and plunder, take from Israel whatever they want to take and do to Israel whatever they want to do, they're going to be allowed to do so. That's a horrific thing. But he, he goes farther. It says that he sells them. To be sold into the hands of their enemies is to be placed into slavery or some other form of extreme oppression. The idea of being sold is a fascinating use of language here. We find the same Hebrew word used to describe what Joseph's brothers did to him. But there's a difference in what Joseph's brothers did to Joseph and what God is doing to the people of Israel here. They're both being sold, but let's think about this. Joseph was really the innocent party being sold into slavery as an act of jealousy and betrayal by other sinful men. But God's actions, again, are both righteous and redemptive in their aim. He's guilty of no wrong in his act to sell those who have abandoned him to serve other gods. Additionally, the Lord is selling the descendants of the very people that he purchases back in Exodus 15, 16. And it says this in verse 15, when they're plundered and sold, it says, wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them. And he had told them. This had already been spoken about. He, he had sworn to them in the covenant. But when they abandoned the covenant, when they abandoned God, the text tells us they were severely distressed. That's how verse 15 ends. They were severely distressed. This burning anger from the Lord did not appear out of nowhere. According to verse 15, God spoke to Israel. He warned them. He gave them a covenant that was required to be kept on both sides. God would keep his end, but the people of Israel would not. The evil that the people of Israel chose to commit was a breaking of the covenant that had been made. And the consequence of breaking this covenant with God is not just his burning anger, but the actions that accompanied that. That wherever they went, that anger was going to accomplish the purpose that it began with. They couldn't hide from the anger of God. It was going to carry out to full fruition. And it tells us that he calls that generation after Joshua to be severely distressed. Think about those words, severely distressed. I believe the severe distress that we find in Judges chapter 2 is similar to that in Matthew chapter 9. Maybe a familiar text. But it says this, Jesus was going about from village to village and I imagine that he comes to the top of a hill and he looks down upon this city. And it says this in verse 36 of Matthew chapter 9. Seeing the people, this is Jesus, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. They were in peril. These people in Matthew chapter 9, they had no shepherd. They had no king. They were like helpless, lost sheep. 
the writer in Judges repeats this sentiment concerning the anger of the Lord again in verse 20. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not listened to my voice. And there's where the breakdown begins. There's where the breakdown begins. When we stop hearing the voice of God, the spiral of degradation begins. They didn't listen to his command to remove all other nations from the land that he had given them. And the anger of the Lord burns because they've broken this covenant that God made with the people of Israel, the ones that he loved, a covenant that the previous generation knew. They heard it, they knew it, and they kept it. Well, how did the previous generation keep such a covenant? Well, if you infer the opposite actions of what we find in verse 20, we know what, we know what the current generation did wrong, then we must assume that the previous generation did not choose as poorly. They chose wisely. We know they listened to the voice of God. They believed not just his words, but in the God who spoke those words because what he told them to do was never easy. It required faith to watch a wall crumble. It took faith to enter into a land and remove entire nations. It took faith. It wasn't an easy task, but they heard they believed and they acted. And that's the difference in the two generations. So what is the purpose of the Lord's anger according to the text today? If he's gonna carry it out until it accomplishes its purpose, what is the purpose of God's anger? Well, I've already mentioned a handful of times that the Lord's anger, though burning and severely distressing, was redemptive. It was redemptive. God did not allow jo Joshua to finish the job of completely fulfilling the terms of the covenant because God wanted the next gen generation to believe as Joshua and his elders had believed. He wanted the, that generation to also listen, believe, and act. God wanted the next generation to hear his voice, to trust his words, and to walk in faith. Nations remain unconquered so that next generation could continue the work that God had called Israel to carry out under Joshua. He was testing the hearts of the next generation. Look with me in verse 21 as we press on in the text. It says this, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he had died. What does that tell us? That means it was not the people of Israel that were driving out those nations. It was God all along. The hard task of driving out these nations that God had called the people of Israel to was being accomplished by God as they believed by faith that he would do what he said he would do. Verse 22, in order, he stopped moving these nations out in order to test Israel by them. Whether, here's the test, they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly. And he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Did you see the wording in verse 22? In order to test Israel. 
The test was to see if they would listen. If they would keep the way of the Lord. If they would walk in obedience. Listen, young people. We, we just heard testimony of 18 to 25 year olds who have heard the word of God preached to them over a series of seven sessions and respond, listen to me. I, I want to speak very clearly to that generation. Listen to my plea. Do not let the work of God that this church has been called to do in the city of Memphis fall on deaf ears. I love the emphasis on missions. Listen, there aren't many corners in the globe of this excuse me, in this world, across this globe, that need the God of the Bible more desperately than the city of Memphis. There's not many places that need the gospel more. Do not forsake God. Listen to his voice. Seek his face. Sit in the counsel of the Lord by meditating on the word of God. I'm asking this generation. This applies to all of us, but as one generation carries out, the next generation has to follow suit. To lay out before you again the vision of the Lord that he's called this church to carry out. Seek wisdom from the saints ahead of you. Do not allow there to be a generational gap in walking in the ways of the Lord. Listen, it's not just for 18 to 25 year olds. If you're above 25 or you're below 18, it all applies. But I'm, I'm speaking to that generation, that little, that little wedge of people to say, go hard after God. Go hard after him. Pick up the mantle. Run with the call. Listen to God's voice. Don't become distressed like sheep without a shepherd or people without a king. They were distressed in this text because they had stopped. They stopped listening to God. Our distress should not come after the Lord disciplines us like he has to do the people of Israel here, but rather before that discipline. If we just listen to his voice, the distress disappears. Because if we're guilty of sin like the people of Israel were, and we hear his voice, we'll know we're in sin and we'll repent of that sin. It comes by recognition of our own sin, a a godly sorrow that accompanies that recognition, and then a, a genuine turning back from that sin to a gracious God. Just as Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 that we talked about earlier, what he sees in these distressed people, it says he had compassion on them. We find God over and over again throughout Scripture in Matthew chapter 9, in Judges chapter 2, having compassion on covenant-breaking people. He'll still do it. He's a compassionate God. So even in the righteous burning anger of God, he aims at redeeming people. Verse 16, if we just skip back, it says, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered him. He saw their distress. He saw the plundering that was happening to his people, and God had compassion, so he raised up judges that would deliver them. That's this cycle that we'll see again and again in Judges. God offers salvation. God offers deliverance. God sends someone to redeem the people from their wickedness. Is this not the picture of the gospel that we find in the New Testament? How about Romans chapter 5? For while we were still helpless, at the right time, 
Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's compassion. Covenant breaking, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, worshiping other gods, and he still has compassion. But the way that compassion comes to be is he pours out his anger to test us, to test our hearts, to see, is there repentance? Is there a turning to me? Is there a pleading with me for mercy and grace? There it is right there in the middle of Judges. The middle of forsaking the Lord by the people of Israel. In the midst of God acting in anger toward the people of Israel. In the depths of their severe distress, God demonstrates his love toward us. In Judges, he's going to provide judges. Ones who will guide the people toward Christ. Back to God. But we find in the New Testament the sweet culmination of what the judges were just a glimpse of. The beauty of the gospel. A God who with finality would pour out his anger on Christ on our behalf. Is this not the heart of the gospel? Just two verses later in Judges, verse 18, it says again, When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies. He's a deliverer. God delivers. He saves. He rescues. Even those who have turned their back on him, he offers this salvation. He has compassion for the affliction that they've brought upon themselves, but he still has compassion. And we see again and again in verses the motivation of such a great salvation. It wasn't the merit or behavior of the people of Israel, not even close but the unmerited mercy and compassion of the Lord at work. God was moved to pity out of the deep roots of God's love and grace. He acts for unworthy people like you and I. But I want you to see what happens when God does this. Let's stay on the trail in Judges chapter 2 as we kind of hit the home stretch here. Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord's anger burns, but in that burning anger, there's also redemption in mind. He provides judges to deliver. And then we find the people of Israel. Look with me in verse 17. Yet they did not listen to their judges. For they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside, listen to this word, quickly. From the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord, for they did not, excuse me, for they did not do as their fathers. Despite receiving the unbelievably, the inexplicable love of the Lord, the people of Israel, according to the text, play the harlot. Man, those are damning words. That's heavy, that's weighty. Can you imagine the betrayal, 
God forbid that you ever experience the heartache of infidelity, the gut-wrenching pain of the deepest betrayal. Can you imagine the heartache of God as he watches his people whom he loves and has delivered time and again so quickly turn to the empty idols of foreign nations? Can you imagine? They played the harlot. They prostituted themselves. They committed infidelity. Listen to the wicked corkscrew descent of the generation after Joshua. Verse 19, but it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers. So every generation more corrupt than the previous. In following other gods to serve them and to bow down to them, they did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. For God, the abandonment was fresh every time, every generation, fresh abandonment. The betrayal got deeper. The sin was more gross. The blatant acts of rebellion became more defiant. The forsaking of God was more swift. The stubbornness of their heart more solidified. The spiritual abyss that awaits those who will not repent, those who will not turn from their sin and to God is unimaginable. Oh, dear saints, do not let your heart grow cold. Do not take your eyes off Christ and his compassion-laced gospel. Do not be cast from the presence of the Lord, but hear his voice. Draw near to him again today. Do not delay. For those who may have never trusted in Christ for the salvation of your souls, what are you waiting for? Your sin will only get worse. The distance between you and God will only compound. See his salvation. See the love of God, repent of your sins, and trust in Him. Christ's sacrifice, His death on the cross, is the compassion of God demonstrated for you. His shed blood is sufficient to pay the price for your sins. You can't out the grace of God. He rose from the grave to give you victory over, over eternal death. He gives you, it's a gift of eternal life it can be yours if you come to Jesus bring your sins to him cry out for mercy and trust that you will find his salvation the Lord tests the hearts of men now I want you to see these final verses in Judges 3 as we conclude Israel does evil inside the Lord the Lord's anger burns but it's redemptive there's compassion laced into that burning anger and Israel just acts more wickedly so the Lord generation after generation including this one that we live in tests the hearts of men he will test us there's not an individual that God will not test look with me in Judges chapter 3 verse 1 now these are the nations which the Lord left why to test Israel there's a purpose to test Israel. The verse tells us 
of this endless cycle of sin, the consequences of such behavior, and the distress that accompanies it all. But there's a purpose. God is testing the hearts of men. He's testing this generation and judges too. Your hearts will be tested. The question is, will you repent and respond to God? Or will you face his unending burning anger? There's only two choices. To conclude today's text, we see a reminder of the gradual descent into the endless cycle of sin. It says in verse 5 of chapter 3, The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives, and they gave their own daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. And the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So he sold them into the hands of Kishon Rishatim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Kishon Rishatim eight years. Did you see the gradual descent that I mentioned at the beginning of today's sermon? It doesn't start in rebellion. It happens quick, but it's a gradual descent. It's both of those things, quick and gradual. Verse 5 says, they became willing, chapter 3, verse 5, they became willing to live among the people rather than drive them out. A little compromise, just a little compromise. Verse 6 says, rather than conquer their enemies, they began to marry them, live among them, then marry them, then join them, allow them to stay, then become like them. And then the end of verse 6, it says, they began to serve other gods. Then worship false gods. Worship their gods. Let them stay. Just compromise a little bit. We'll keep them among us. Then we join them. Then we worship what they worship. They play the harlot on faithful God who lovingly provides their salvation. Be careful of the subtle entrances that wickedness will attempt to make into your heart. Subtle, compromise. And before you know it, the people do evil in God's sight. They forsake him altogether. They worship empty false gods, which can do nothing for them except lead them into slavery. Like a dog returning to the trash for some fleeting empty pleasure, only to be punished again and again. That's what it's like. So I have a single application. This will be quick and we'll conclude. I want to leave you with one thing. You worship your way into sin. And you must worship your way out of sin. Here's the application. Fix your worship problem. Fix your worship problem. The gospel alone frees us from guilt and breaks the power of cyclical sin. This cycle of sin, this downward spiral of degradation, this getting more and more corrupt generation after generation, it can only be stopped one way. Faith in Jesus Christ. Set aside these false, empty, no gods at all, 
and embrace the one true God. I said at the beginning, I have one aim. Repent of your sin, believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and worship the one true God with all your heart. Let's pray. Father, we tremble at the reality that if the writer who penned the book of Judges lived today, he could write a very similar story. We're a lot like the people of Judges. We're so willing to allow a little compromise subtle entrances into our heart and imperceptibly we drift away we no longer hear the voice of the lord believe and act appropriately lord help us father i pray that you would not let a single follower of jesus christ fall into that cycle and father i pray for those who are caught up in that cycle right now that are in this room They've never placed their trust in Jesus. They know there's a deliverer, but they have not rested in his salvation. Father, I pray that you would grant it. Father, I pray that you would grant everyone in this room, wherever they are in their walk with the Lord, repentance and renewed faith. Lord, help us to worship you and you alone. Fix our worship problem, we beg, we plead, we ask, we beseech you for our good and your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.